Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. In 1980, the British post-pulp author James Herbert released his seventh novel. Entitled The Dark, it introduced modern readers to a new member of the monstrous family of cosmic horror, the sentient darkness. The villain in The Dark is not of the dark. It is the dark, an amorphous swath of non-being that is undeniably, paradoxically, a being in its own right. Of course, in concocting this monster... Herbert was drawing deep from the dark well of the past. The idea that shadows, especially anthropomorphic ones, have their own substance and agency, may be as old as the imagination itself. Modern science, of course, never tires of reminding us that black isn't a color, that darkness is nothing but a trick of light, an effect. But all it takes is to pick up a paintbrush to know that our senses don't lie. Van Gogh once wrote, Suffice it to say that black and white are also colors for their simultaneous contrast is as striking as that of green and red. In painting, film, photography, and literature, darkness isn't an absence but a presence. In one sense, Herbert is asking the question, and what if the aesthetic were the real? The same question haunts in praise of shadows, the essay we'll be discussing today. Junichiro Tanizaki's lament for the disappearance of darkness in the modern world is more than the complaint of a mad old man, a persona that the Japanese novelists often put on in his interactions with the public. It is, first and foremost, a paean to darkness, an ode to what remains of it in our overlit technological civilization. In Praise of Shadows is a meditation on the metaphysical, political, and artistic cost of our modern fear of the dark. In the end, it may also contain a warning. You may have noticed that Phil and I really dig black and white, For one, those are the only colors in the Weird Studies Two Crows logo, which my friend Joseph Cook designed for us back in 2018. I'm happy to announce that this fondness for the primal agents of the visible world are now on full display at the Weird Studies online merch shop, which opens its doors today. Yes, listener, the black and white Weird Studies coffee mug, premium t-shirt, and phone case are now within your reach. The shop is part of the online marketplace Red Bubble, because red is a cool color too. You'll find a link in the show notes, alongside links to the Weird Studies bookshop and, of course, the Weird Studies Patreon. Okay, on with the show. So how are you doing this fine morning? I'm fine. Let's pretend that we haven't been talking already for like an hour and a half. Yeah. (laughs) Good to see you this morning, JF. Like those goldfish in Monty Python. Good morning. (laughs) Um, So what are we doing? What are we talking about today? We're talking about a book that 
was on my initial list. I'm pretty sure that when we both first drafted a list of things we'd love to do, I'd put this on in Praise of Shadows by Junichiro Tanizaki. Very short little essay on the blurb here is like it's an essay on aesthetics, which I guess it is, by the Japanese novelist, essayist Tanizaki. I haven't read Some Prefer Nettles. That's his big classic. But I have read one called The Key, or Kagi, I think in the original Japanese, which is just a wonderful, wonderful novel. He was a guy whose life straddles the 19th and 20th century. I think he was born in like 1865 and lived to a ripe old age and wrote over basically 50 years and really saw the transformation of Japan from a position of relative cultural isolation. Until the Meiji Restoration, I think there were some pretty severe limits on how much trade or like how much travel from the West was permitted in Japan. And so, you know, Japan, since the mid-19th century, it's been a story of a formerly somewhat secluded society and culture with a very, very firm sense of its own culture, very firm sense of its own cultural traditions, encountering the West and having many of those traditions overthrown. Right. And this essay is precisely about the subtle ways in which the Meiji Restoration, the modernization of Japan, uh, has changed life as the Japanese knew it. And Tanizaki is... Uh, grumpy old man fashion, mourning the loss of a beautiful world, but doing it so brilliantly because it's a beautiful world that his own contemporaries don't seem to be aware ever existed. Mm. Um, and it's a wonderful meditation on colonization from a, a novel angle because it shows us how the colonial process includes changes and transformations below the threshold of consciousness, below the threshold right. of, of cultural discourse, things that change everything, but no one noticed it when it happened. Mm. Specifically in this book, he's talking about, and the book's called In Praise of Shadows, and that's literally what it is. He's saying that the rise of modern lighting in Japan has banished the shadows that were once part and parcel of Japanese life. And he's saying that with that loss comes a much greater loss, like a loss of a, an entire world has disappeared or is in the process right. of disappearing. So right. I just think it's a, it's a beautiful rambling essay. It's like it goes from one thing <laughs> to another. But it actually, that's deceptive because it has a very clear, I mean, laser-like precision to it mm -hmm. that uh, comes through in the second read for me anyways. Yeah. 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 We're so used to electric light, we don't think of it as having some particular location, some culture of origin. But, you know, it's a Western thing. Electric light came to Japan from the West. And so Tanizaki is thinking about how this is an innovation from outside his culture. And he feels that the spirit of this innovation is alien his culture. It's not just sort of like the entire world was waiting for electric light and then Edison invented the light bulb. So boom, now everyone's got electric light. Tanizaki is actually making an argument that feels very contemporary, something we would associate with modern cultural studies, saying that the very idea of wanting to light your home with light bulbs 
is itself culturally conditioned. Yeah. And he traces like the light bulb is the culmination of an of an an aspiration that goes way back and he brings in like gothic cathedrals and the way that gothic cathedrals are designed to let light in to create a world yeah. without shadows ideally as a prefiguration of Edison's invention so that Edison just delivers on something that the West had been waiting for for a very, very long time. He, he makes some really interesting comments about how, for example, the Japanese idea of a garden as a kind of more enclosed place is very different from the Western idea of the lawn, something that's open, that allows light to penetrate every corner. He comes up with a lot of examples like that, ways in which there's a sort of a Western cultural logic of revealing things in light or leaving things open to light. Yeah. And the weird twist in his essays that you get the sense as you read it that, wow, lighting, modern lighting, this ideal that everything should be lit, should be properly seen, is actually concealing things from us. That, right. that certain things are revealed in darkness. Certain things become yeah. visible in darkness that uh, have become invisible to us because we don't have access to that darkness. There are really cool passages about how darkness is just filled with color. Um, at one point, mm. he talks about how it's not surprising that the ancients would see ghosts because ghosts are part of that spectral spectral spectrum <laughs> that belongs <laughs> properly to darkness. They manifest in darkness. That doesn't mean they're not there. Darkness is the, is the it tends to dissolve or, or make porous the boundary between the imagination and the world so that the, the kind of more fundamental unicity of those two orders becomes manifest to us. Like he writes, the elegant aristocrat of old was immersed in this suspension of ashen particles. He's talking about the particles that you see in darkness. When you're in a, mm -hmm. a rich, dark, a shadowy darkness, it's filled with things. It's like it's substance. Yeah. It has a substance. The elegant aristocrat of old was immersed in the suspension of ashen particles, soaked in it. But the man of today, long used to the electric light, has forgotten that such a darkness existed. It must have been simple for specters to appear in a visible darkness where always something seemed to be flickering and shimmering, a darkness that on occasion held greater terrors than darkness out of doors. It's true. Uh, in our culture, we've made a binary of light and dark so that, for instance, we have very little language to talk about subtleties and different types of darkness, different types of shadow. We tend to default to the type of darkness that is most manifest, most clearly manifest to us if you're on on a football field at night and it's just like surrounded with floodlights so that no shadows exist in the football field. But beyond right. it, if you look past the stands, it's just this inky blackness. It's, right. it's not an abyss, but a void. It's not an mm. abyss filled with detail, with geography, but rather a kind of blankness. And so he's calling attention to the subtleties of different types of darkness, which are basically receding from our life today because of electric light.
I like what you say about this as a, among other things, a way of thinking about colonization or colonialism and thinking particularly about what it is to be on the other side of what is sometimes called coca colonization. And as I say, there's a lot about this book that feels very contemporary. One thing that he does is it's actually a pretty standard move as people have been developing ideas of minority literatures, you know, like an African-American literature or Hispanic-American literature, Asian-American literature, etc. Within that domain of thought, the question is always going to be, all right, so how do we establish our own principles, principles by which we can generate our own tradition? And Tanizaki is being very, he's interested in the technology of, you know, the modern West, but he wants to figure out, he he knows he himself is never going to figure this out, but he wants to imagine like, what would it be like if we had invented the electric light, if the Japanese had invented the electric light? Well, maybe that technology would have been developed in completely different ways, according to the logic of a Japanese culture rather than the United States. He's broader. He talks about Asian in general. Yeah, true. Yeah. So trying to find a passage here. So yeah, this is on starting on page seven of the the translation, which so far as I know is the only translation going, Thomas Harper and Edward Seidensticker. There's a newer one, I think, but I have the same translation. Okay. So yeah, it's on page seven of that edition. He writes had we devised independently at least the more practical sorts of inventions, this could not but have had profound influence upon the conduct of our everyday lives, and even upon government, religion, art, and business. The Orient quite conceivably could have opened up a world of technology entirely its own. To take a trivial example near at hand, I wrote a magazine article recently comparing the writing brush with the fountain pen, and in the course of it, I remarked that if the device had been invented by the ancient Chinese or Japanese, it would surely have had a tufted end like our writing brush. The ink would not have been this bluish color, but rather black, something like India ink, and it would have been made to seep down from the handle into the brush. And since we would have then found it inconvenient to write on Western paper, something near Japanese paper, even under mass production, if you will, would have been most in demand. Foreign ink and pen would not be as popular as they are. The talk of discarding our system of writing for Roman letters would be less noisy. People would still feel an affection for the old system. But more than that, our thought and our literature might not be imitating the West as they are, but might have pushed forward into new regions, quite on their own. An insignificant little piece of writing equipment, when one thinks of it, has had a vast, almost boundless influence on our culture. Yeah. That feels like a very contemporary sort of utterance. And keep yeah. in mind, this essay think, was written in the 30s. It makes me think of like Afrofuturism, which tries yes. to imagine how an African civilization might have become hypermodern or even right. kind of space age or something like that. Yeah, that is really contemporary. Just on the same page, he kind of gives the reason why he's thinking of this on those terms. He writes, indeed, for even the sternest ascetic... The fact remains that a snowy day is cold, and there is no denying the impulse to accept the services of a heater if it happens to be there in front of one, no matter how cruelly its inelegance may shatter the spell of the day. I find that's a key thought, because 
one of the things about the colonial process is that it gives you things that solve problems, right? So the modern technology that's exported to Japan is actually, you know, for instance, um, giving you central heating, whereas before winter was cold. And yes, right. the coldness of winter was incorporated in the cultural life of the time so that there's an aesthetic dimension to that cold, which is kind of a part of the meaning-making quality of life in that culture. And, right. and so you're losing that, but who's going to say no to a heater when it's really cold? You're right. going to take it. And that's right. the thing about electric light. That's the thing about all these uh, the amenities of modern technology is that it's really hard to say no. We all have this problem today with our phones. We might rail against what the smartphone has done to us, to our memory, to our social relationships, to our family life. But it's really, really hard to say no to it. Maybe it's like quasi impossible without living a drastically different sort of life from the life that everyone around you is living. And it's because of that that he's thinking, well, maybe there would have been a way for Japan or for the Orient, as he calls it, for Asia to develop its own type of modern technology. But then he kind of subverts himself by saying that modern technology is an organic outcome of Western thought itself. So that yes. technology, of course, exists everywhere, but this type of what I would call digital technology, okay? Um, and I'm using the word digital in a way that's much broader than just computers and stuff, like a digital in the sense of seeing light as a kind of univocal element. So you, you, you reduce things to binaries. So that, that kind of MO that's behind modern technology, we need to banish darkness. Darkness is bad. Therefore, we want everything lit. That type of digital thinking is something that's very Western. So it's hard to imagine how something like the light bulb might ever have arisen outside of the West. You know, you get all kinds of examples. The classic example is gunpowder was created by the Chinese, but guns were developed by the West. Right. Um, right. But what I find really interesting in this book is the way in which it shows us the almost subconscious effects of adopting new technologies. The light bulb was just as alien to the first Westerners who were confronted with it as it was to the Japanese. It changed life like shadows were perhaps an unfortunate part of life in the West before the light bulb, something that people would have preferred to get rid of because they had a kind of moral ideal of light as something inherently good. Nevertheless, shadows were part of everybody's life, and that visible right. darkness was something that everyone was immersed in. The one problem, though, with reading an essay like this is that its author is arguing for... Not exactly a return to an older aesthetic, because he recognizes that such a return is impossible for the reasons that you suggest that like, yeah, a cold morning might be part of your aesthetic experience, but if you have an opportunity for it to be a warm morning, then you're going to take that opportunity. He knows this perfectly well. And in fact, the translator afterward tells a story about how, you know, he was having a house built for him. And the architect had read in Praise of Shadows and said, oh, I know exactly what you want. I'm going to build you a house exactly like what you want from, you know, to go by this essay. And Tanizaki apparently said, well, but I would never live in a place like that. Yeah. 
which I think is kind of funny. Yeah. You know, I think he recognizes that, uh, you know, an actual return to the old days is impossible. But take the title seriously. It is in praise of shadows. He's praising the things that are now lost. Or asking that we maybe try to find them. He says it at the end. Yeah. At the end, he writes, I have written all this because I have thought that there might still be somewhere, possibly in literature or the arts, where something could be saved. I would call back at least for literature, this world of shadows we are losing. In the mansion called literature, I would have the eaves deep and the walls dark. I would push back into the shadows the things that come forward too clearly. I would strip away the useless decoration. I do not ask that this be done everywhere, but perhaps we may be allowed at least one mansion where we can turn off the electric lights and see what it is like without them. And so that's the kind of zinger at the end where he brings it all home and saying this is yeah. an aesthetic argument. But it's also an argument to experience things aesthetically. And this is the key thing because, okay, let's take shadows and light as a concept. So physically, we know that shadows have only a negative existence, right? Shadow is the absence of light. It's that point where the light doesn't hit. The light doesn't go there. That's the shadow. And shadow exists only relative to an adjacent area that isn't shadow. If there's no light at all, you're not saying that there's shadows. Shadows is just the effect of an obstruction to the light that creates a pool of darkness where there should be light. Likewise, darkness in the more general sense is also has only a negative existence physically, technically. Darkness is just the absence of light. Aesthetically, however, things are different. Aesthetically, darkness has substance. Darkness aesthetically is on an equal footing with light. In chiaroscuro painting, painting that really capitalizes on contrast of shadow and light, the two forces, light and shadow, exist in a kind of Manichaean equality. They're both substantive forces in a world of forces. And he's saying that this is what we're really at risk of losing is in reducing all darkness to that kind of football field black wall behind the floodlights, we are losing all the subtleties of what may, in the physical sense, not be a substance, but in an aesthetic sense, it's just filled with substance and filled with complexity and colors and beings. And so he's saying at the end, although we can't go back to that, but we'll never get rid of our electric lights unless we're forced to by a solar storm or something. I don't know. Um, Snake Plissken pushes that button at the end of Escape from yeah. L.A. We shouldn't lose the ability to perceive darkness the way that, that our ancestors did. Exactly. As substance, something with substance, with personality, with intention, with purpose. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was exactly where I was going is because, you know, what would we expect our readers to get? out of this essay. Perhaps there are some scholars of Asian art who might find it interesting to engage with this as a historical piece, an expression of uh, an older 19th century Japanese aesthetic that was already passing away at the time this essay was written. Perhaps it would be interesting for the stuff we were talking about earlier, about colonization, the dynamics of colonization and the challenge of creating artistic or cultural traditions in the shadow of some colonizing hegemon. But 
that doesn't feel like enough for me to no. justify talking about this essay. If this were just something that was teaching me about Japanese art, that would be great. But, you know, I don't actually feel like I'm in any way qualified to talk about Japanese art and how these theories might help explain that art. Put it this way. In, in order for this essay to work for me, at any rate, I have to find a way to translate it into my own life. That to me, the great value here is not sort of thinking like, oh, well, Tanizaki is talking about Japanese aesthetic principles that only Japanese people really know or care anything about. Now, if that's the case, then the appeal and value of this essay is going to be very limited. But I don't think that's the case. I think that loving shadows and seeking shadows and finding in shadows a very deep principle, not only of design, but of being... That is something that is available to anybody, and it's actually a book that teaches you a certain way of looking, and that's how it's valuable to me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it goes beyond just physical shadows. It's an appreciation of concealment as a kind of presence, that an aesthetic can exist that reveals through concealment, that by sinking something into shadows, you might be seeing more of it than you would see if you were to see it in a perfectly lit display. Um, That's right. It's like the argument that I think I made in the Heraclitus episode that the corpus of Heraclitus's fragments are more complete because they're fragmentary than they would have been if we'd had the whole thing, which is counterintuitive. Mm. But what it is, is that I think the Heraclitus's thought has to do with fragmentariness and the way that things exist in fragments and in rifts yes. and cracks. And so... That quality is present in the fragmentary nature of his work. You might argue that the Holy Spirit made sure that it was transformed into the form we have it now in order to complete it, that history completes hmm. things. And this is something Tanizaki says when he talks about the patina that tarnishes silver over time, the way that Westerners are constantly polishing their silverware in order to keep it really, really brilliant. Whereas in traditional Japanese aesthetics, silver becomes more beautiful, the more tarnished it becomes. And I strongly agree. And it's something I've always felt. I've always felt the slight disappointment when I've seen somebody's silverware suddenly polished to a bright sheen. Mm. Um, I love to see tarnished silver. It's so beautiful. And it's beautiful precisely because its historicity, its time, its experience in the world is encoded in it. So that it's, it's something existing in the world. It's a process of becoming. It's not just an isolable being that you would put in a display case. It's an object that is becoming with us in our world of becoming. And so for that reason, the corruption of a thing, and he says at one part, like a crucial element of true elegance is unsanitariness. <laughs> a, a little bit of grime, filth is necessary for something to be truly elegant. Yes. Because, because that's the way that it shows it's becoming. It shows it's transience. It's very, this is very close to a kind of Buddhist aesthetics, I guess, or Shinto aesthetics. And so he's training us in that. He's educating us in this way of seeing. There's a passage on page 11 of this book that speaks to this that I wanted to read. He points out that it's not the Japanese people dislike everything that shines. 
But he writes, we do prefer a pensive luster to shallow brilliance, a murky light that, whether in a stone or an artifact, bespeaks a sheen of antiquity. So he, you know, the previous paragraph has been talking about jade. Why is it that jade is so attractive to Asian artists and relatively unheralded in the West, as opposed to diamonds, where everybody loves diamonds, which are brilliant and clear, right? And you can see how he's gathering up the strands of this argument that there's just this kind of Asian love of murk and unclarity and shadows. And he speaks of a, a sheen of antiquity that the murk tells us something of time about the origins of an object. And he goes on to write, of course, this sheen of antiquity of which we hear so much is in fact the glow of grime. In both Chinese and Japanese, the words denoting this glow describe a polish that comes of being touched over and over again, a sheen produced by the oils that naturally permeate an object over long years of handling, which is to say grime. If indeed elegance is frigid, it can as well be described as filthy. Yeah, exactly. There it is. So this reminds me of Walter Benjamin's idea of aura, the aura of objects which is eroded in a culture of mechanical reproduction, which in that phase in his career, Benjamin was praising. He was praising the erosion of aura in order to make things clearer, more political, less tied to tradition and history. Right, right. And so here Tanizaki is praising aura as the constitutive element of aesthetic beauty. What makes something yeah. beautiful is its place in a world, right? And how it brings to the fore the qualities of that world. One of the most beautiful instances of that, which I've probably mentioned on the show, is in Ozu's film, Tokyo Story. Is it Tokyo Story? Ozu was a great Japanese filmmaker who filmed everything with a 50 millimeter lens, no matter what, which is great. And so he had all kinds of cool ways of, of shooting things. But one of the things he does so beautifully is capture what Deleuze calls the time image, which is a cinematic image that shows you time in its naked state. And the famous example is at the end of Ozu's film where one of the protagonists, this woman, is lying on her tatami mat and trying to get to sleep. And the camera cuts to a vase in the corner of the room and then cuts back to her and then cuts back to the vase and just stays on it for a long, long time. And that vase, not, it's not just a vase. It's an entire world of which this vase is part that is being right. shown to us in this image. And um, I think that's what he's getting at with this talk of grime and tarn and, and wear on things. This is what the Japanese, you know, there's a famous book everybody knows about, Wabasabi, the aesthetic of like, for example, when supposedly in Japan, when you break, a, let's say, a mug or a cup and you fix it, you fix it with golden glue so that you can see where the cracks were. So the cracks remain part of the history of this object and what makes it beautiful. Yeah, I think you would do that with a, a nice piece of ceramic, not with an old Garfield mug that your grandma has. No, of course. <laughs> Although that would be an interesting thing. It's treating this shitty thing as if it was like a this valuable thing from the past. And right. Actually, that would be a really interesting thing to try to do, to honor that, to try to inscribe the historicity that modern consumer objects so ruthlessly edit out. Yeah. 
Well, that's what post-apocalyptic fiction does so well, right? Yeah. Because the characters find just what would have been garbage to us suddenly becomes this beautiful, numinous object to them. Um, or what we value becomes garbage. Like, you know, yeah, you exactly. see the, the Twin Towers in Escape from New York, darkened and rubbished. Yeah, exactly. You know, this gleaming prow of Manhattan yeah. reduced to the spire of garbage. Yeah, you're right. Post-apocalyptic fiction works that trope all the time. Yeah. I should have continued reading this passage because I realized that, that the last sentence is the best. Okay, go uh, for it. I'm going to finish this. It says, for better or worse, we do love things that bear the marks of grime, soot, and weather. And we love the colors and the sheen that call to mind the past that made them. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. Benjamin's aura right there. And which calls up Benjamin's other idea that he somewhat sort of denounces in that essay, which is the opposite of exhibition value, which is cult value. The things that objects have their own inherent being and power. And in fact, if you follow the logic, it's very clear. The reason why you appreciate the historicity of an object, its past as part of its appearance, for example, the tarnished silver chalice, let's say. Mm -hmm. The reason you appreciate its patina of wear and tear is that this is what gives its hexaity, its uniqueness, Mm. It, it's what makes it not just an instance of a chalice, but this chalice. Mm. It allows you to enter into an I-thou relationship with the chalice, where that chalice is so mm. singular and unique that it can only be properly addressed as a you. I mean, I'm, I'm putting words in Tanizaki's mouth, but I sense that that's the territory he's heading for. It's that objects become most resplendent when their absolute singularity becomes obvious and hard to deny, when they have to be addressed as individuals.
One of the things that he talks about, though, that does resonate with me on my very superficial knowledge of Japanese culture, I guess my main connection to Japanese culture is the fact that I'm a Zen Buddhist. The temple that I was a part of for several years some time ago, Senshinji, here in Bloomington, Indiana, which, by the way, I really recommend if you were at all interested in making the Zen scene and you live in South Central Indiana, I can't think of a better place than Senshinji for you to check out. And I remember the first time, not the first time, but the first few times I was there, I was always struck by like, God, it's so goddamn dark in here. Like uh, just very, very subdued lighting. And I found it extremely bare. There's almost no ornament at all in a Zen temple. There are the black cushions sitting on tatami mats on the floor. There's the altar, which is very simple, a little vase of flowers, a little bowl for incense, a manjushri statue, and a little dish for water. And that's pretty much it. And, you know, compare it to a Tibetan temple, which will be like just vivid colors and there's just lots to look at. Uh, a Japanese-style temple is going to look very plain by comparison. And... Tanizaki writes something that totally tracks with my own experience, which is, he says, you know, that Westerners, when they first see a Japanese room, think that it's very bare. But the problem is that they're not yet seeing the shadows and the shadows are part of the design. Exactly. Yeah. This is on page 20. A Japanese room might be likened to an ink wash painting. The paper paneled shochi being the expanse where the ink is thinnest and the alcove where it is darkest. Whenever I see the alcove of a tastefully built Japanese room, I marvel at our comprehension of the secrets of shadow, our sensitive use of shadow and light. For the beauty of the alcove is not the work of some clever device. An empty space is marked off with plain wood and plain walls so that the light drawn into it forms dim shadows within emptiness. There is nothing more. And yet, when we gaze into the darkness that gathers behind the crossbeam, around the flower base, beneath the shelves, though we know perfectly well it is mere shadow, we are overcome with the feeling that in this small corner of the atmosphere there reigns complete and utter silence, that here, in the darkness, immutable tranquility holds sway. And that is precisely the feeling I had going to the Zen temple as a Zen noob, somebody who knew next to nothing about the tradition, but just felt drawn to it. And the slow realization over time, the great love I had for sitting in that darkened Zendo at five in the morning sometimes, experiencing it as a play of shadows where, yeah, shadows are immaterial, but the shadow is the consequence of the interplay of different architectural things, the light, the walls, and whatever objects are in the room, like the vase of flowers. And the idea that what is beautiful in the room is not just the things that have been carved or painted or shaped by human hands, but the dynamic interplay of these elements in an environment that's dependent upon like where the sun is in the sky and who showed up that morning and blah, blah, blah. That awareness that the beauty is not something that somebody made, but it's emergent in the total scene. But it's a total scene that has allowed for shadows to happen. Absolutely. I'd like to challenge the idea that he seems to be arguing for, that there is a clear East-West dichotomy here. I don't believe that the West is 
that this sort of aesthetic is completely alien to the Western sensibility. However, absolutely, yeah, I think that this type of praise of shadows, you find it in the West. For instance, if we look at literature, you find its clearest articulation in you know what's called Gothic fiction, right? And Gothic mm-hmm. fiction is about reframing. And somebody was saying on Reddit, we never talk about architecture. We kind of are talking about architecture now. Gothic fiction is really concerned with architecture, right? Architecture mm-hmm. is a central component to Gothic fiction. The architecture of the castle, of the abbey, of the, the village, and the way that these spaces that were designed with light as an ideal – like the cathedral, which was supposed to be, or the abbey, which was supposed to be suffused with light, sunlight, which symbolizes divine light because Western culture draws on Plato, who made it, the, you know, this famous simile of the sun, that the sunlight is an analogy of the light of pure intellect, are now in their abandoned state filled with shadows and ghosts. So the spaces of light have been retrieved by the shadows. That's the Gothic move. And it has to do with architecture. There's a moment in this book where he brilliantly gives us a theory of architecture that I find super interesting. He says, the way that you make a home is you build a parasol, a roof, in order to create a pool of shadow. And in that pool of shadow, you make your home. And this is crazy. It has a lot of ethological affordances. That's what animals do. Animals will seek shadows for their dens, for their nests, whatever. A shaded place, of course, because very few species of animals can live comfortably in the blinding light of the sun. And so you need a roof, something to create a pool of shadow, something to hide from the sun. And in order to build a home, you need to be hiding from the sun. You need to create a place where you create your own little sun be it a candle or a a lantern. And that Promethean move of creating a space of shadow in the world drenched in sunlight is kind of the establishment of territory at its most fundamental, according Hmm. to to Tanizaki. So the Hmm. parasol, and he's, he's comparing Japanese roofs to Western roofs. Western roofs are supposed to be just a little cap, a little thing just to, to block how would I say, the harmful aspects of sunlight, but let in as much of the beneficial aspects as possible, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. my favorite type of modern house is the mid-century house, which often has skylights on a tilted ceiling in the living room. You let in some light. And so this play of shadow and light is just as operative in Western culture as it is in Eastern culture, I'm sure. The thing about modern lighting, and I do believe Tanizaki is right, I do believe that it consummates a deep aspiration of the Western mind. So what Edison did was provide a physical solution to a metaphysical problem in inventing the light bulb. Although I do believe that's the case, I don't believe that you can sum up Western culture in this idea of light. I believe that this idea of light is a particular take, a particular attitude, a particular conclusion drawn from a consciousness of the dichotomy of shadow and light. So that the point of Gothic literature is to retrieve what a certain, perhaps lopsided overemphasis 
on one side of our civilization is blinding us to. It's trying to retrieve something that should be remembered. And I think that Gothic literature is in praise of shadows. And there are super Gothic passages in this text. When he's describing how women existed in traditional Japan, that part is unbelievable. He's talking about how traditionally in Japan, women could show only their faces so that their entire body was wrapped in layers and layers of fabric so that only the face showed. And even the teeth were too much. The teeth were blackened. And then they put on this deep green lipstick and women stayed in the home. So they stayed in dark places so that women were part and parcel of the world of shadows in tradition, according to Tanizaki. You'd walk into a room and you see this spectral shadowiness everywhere. And in the midst of this inky blackness, you'd have this weirdly luminous face. And that was the woman of the house. You know, she belonged to that world of specters. Women played the part of embodying, representing that side of life that modern culture wants to completely negate. Um, And more to the point, also, her beauty was very specifically the beauty of something shining out of the dark. Exactly. Exactly. Correct. The whiteness of the face and the blackness of everything surrounding it, and even the punctuation of blackness in teeth and lips. There's a neat passage on page 34 that I wrote weird in the margin, (laughs) because I'm reading this, I'm like, if you took this out of context, it would feel like it was straight from a piece of weird fiction. I was in a large room, the pine room, I think, since destroyed by fire, and the darkness, broken only by a few candles, was of a richness quite different from the darkness of a small room. As we came in the door, an elderly waitress with shaven eyebrows and blackened teeth was kneeling by a candle behind which stood a large screen. On the far side of the screen, at the edge of the little circle of light, the darkness seemed to fall from the ceiling, lofty, intense, monolithic. The fragile light of the candle, unable to pierce its thickness, turned back as from a black wall. Yeah. Love that. And particularly that sentence, the elderly waitress with shaven eyebrows and blackened teeth kneeling by a candle. Something about just those words in that order just gives me a shiver of strangeness. And this monolithic, almost like a light, like a sunbeam of darkness coming down. Yes. And the way that the, what little candlelight exists in this vast room, because he observes that rooms tend to be built smaller in modern Japan, whereas before architectural spaces tended to be vast and yet there was no light, right? Mm, so you had right. vast spaces with pools of light in them. And that's the right. way it was in Europe as well. Like the a typical medieval castle was mostly just shadows with a, occasionally a yeah. beam of light coming in through an arrow slip or murder hole. And then in the great hall, the chandelier, because it couldn't produce enough light, had to be lowered like right above the table. So if you entered the great hall during a feast, you would see just a faintly lit little world in the middle of this world of shadows. He's right when he points out the Gothic cathedral. But what I want to say is that the Gothic cathedral existed in the Middle Ages in contrast to everything else, right? The idea was to provide a completely transformative experience so that when you entered the cathedral, you were existing in a world of color and light, exactly the type of world that we have now made ubiquitous, and, and mm. omnipresent. So mm. you would enter the cathedral. Everything was a sign telling you things. Everything was colorful and lit. 
The windows were just filtering in this incredible sunlight that filtered through the colors of the stained glass. And the whole place was kind of this beautiful, luminous palace that the stone was just kind of framing of the real palace, which was a palace of light. And the reason why light was praised that way was, it's, I think it's predicated on the idea of an eschatological frame for history, that history, there will come a time, the new Jerusalem will be a world of light. We will be delivered mm. from the shadows. And so what modern Western culture does is it keeps that eschatological take on light and applies it without it, without it being an object that you present in contrast with the pervasive shadows of actual life, and you make life that luminous new Jerusalem. And so that we mm. live, in a sense, in an articulation or a formulation or a manifestation of an eschatological aspiration of the age that precedes us. We actually live in the new Jerusalem. We make it all around us. And just to finish that thought, there's a really cool passage here from a wonderful book that I recommend, another short book. It's by Jonathan Crary. It's called 24-7. Full title is 24-7, Late Capitalism and the End of Sleep. And he's basically arguing there that the elimination of sleep is part of the final stage of capitalist colonization, right? the colonization mm -hmm. of the mind and of time and of space. And he writes on page eight, behind the vacuity of the catchphrase 24-7, He's using the term, now the title of his book, but the, just the term 24-7, which is constantly bandied about in our culture. Behind the vacuity of the catchphrase, 24-7 is a static redundancy that disavows its relation to the rhythmic and periodic textures of human life. It connotes an arbitrary, uninflected schema of a week extracted from any unfolding of variegated or cumulative experience. To say 24-365, for example, is simply not the same, for this introduces an unwieldy suggestion of an extended temporality in which something might actually change, in which unforeseen events might happen. As I indicated initially, many institutions in the developed world have been running 24-7 for decades now. It is only recently that the elaboration, the modeling of one's personal and social identity has been reorganized to conform to the uninterrupted operation of markets, information networks, and other systems. A 24-7 environment has the semblance of a social world, but it is actually a non-social model of machinic performance and a suspension of living that does not disclose the human cost required to sustain its effectiveness. It must be distinguished from what Lukács and others in the early 20th century identified as the empty, homogenous time of modernity, the metric or calendar time of nations, of finance or industry, from which individual hopes or projects were excluded. What is new is the sweeping abandonment of the pretense that time is coupled to any long-term undertakings, even to fantasies of progress or development. An illuminated 24-7 world without shadows is the final capitalist mirage of post-history, of an exorcism of the otherness that is the motor of historical change. Whoa, that is an amazing passage. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that light has to become ubiquitous, that everything has to be lit, that unconsciousness tarnishedness time needs to be eliminated from our experience right. this is part of the real colonizing force which is colonizing western people as much as it's colonizing other peoples it's not just right. western man living out his telos it's a particularly i would argue a kind of gnostic in the bad sense take on western culture that has decided to 
eminentize the eschaton, to use Eric Vogelin's phrase. That's a really, really strong position. I really like that. Because, yeah, for one thing, it sort of turns it around on us. You know, colonization on the one hand is a historical process that happened in 19th and 20th century and has to do with the West going elsewhere and throwing its weight around. And none of that is anything that either of us would dispute. But that this colonization goes deeper, that actually we are being colonized as well, that uh, this chasing away of shadows is part and parcel of the chasing away of reflection, privacy, inefficiency, the analog. Yeah. Yeah. Re reality. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought about that at all, but yeah. I mean, and then from that point of view, the stakes are high with this book. It's not just as he presents himself, I mean, somewhat humorously as a, an elderly grumbling Japanese novelist who's wishing things were different, but recognizes that things never could be different. And yet, that's a kind of crafty way of hiding the seriousness of this book. I have no idea if he intended it in this way, but this becomes sort of a manual for how to live better in our overlit insomniac world. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm not saying that this book is a self-help book because it isn't. I am saying that there are a number of books including this book, that could be read profitably as books that are telling you how to live your life a little bit better under the conditions in which you find yourself, and the conditions of insomniac modernity that we've been talking about both in this episode and almost every other one. And here, the advice that you could extract from this, that you could synthesize, would simply be look for shadows, yeah. find the shadows and learn what they have to show you. And the way he does that is by giving us page after page of beautiful descriptions of like the glimmer of miso soup in a black lacquer bowl in a, dark in a traditional room. Japanese room. Yeah. yeah. Or the, the passage on the toilet. Oh, oh, can I read that? I really want to read the toilet passage. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. This is on page four. Right at the beginning. <laughs> and he says, as I have said, and he's been already talking about the toilet for a little while. There are certain prerequisites, a degree of dimness, absolute cleanliness, and a quiet so complete one can hear the hum of a mosquito. I love to listen from such a toilet to the sound of softly falling rain, especially if it is a toilet of the Kanto region, with its long narrow windows at floor level. There one can listen with such a sense of intimacy to the raindrops falling from the eaves and the trees, seeping into the earth as they wash over the base of a stone lantern and freshen the moss about the stepping stones. And the toilet is the perfect place to listen to the chirping of insects or the song of the birds, to view the moon, or to enjoy any of those poignant moments that mark the change of the seasons. Here, I suspect, is where haiku poets over the ages have come by a great many of their ideas. Indeed, one could with some justice claim that of all the elements of Japanese architecture, the toilet is the most aesthetic. Our forebears, making poetry of everything and their lives, transformed what by rights should be the most unsanitary room in the house into a place of unsurpassed elegance, replete with fond associations with the beauties of nature. 
I love that passage. And I read it out mostly just because it's so extra. You know, there's so much more there than it needs to for the point of view of like putting across his thesis. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, all the stuff about the rain wetting the base of the stone lanterns and freshening the moss around the stepping stones. All of that kind of stuff is totally unnecessary for the point that he's making. But he piles on these beautifully drawn little details to give you a sense of what you get when you read a novel, a haptic sense of what it feels like to be in that scene. And maybe literature also always gives us this opportunity as well. But in showing you this beautiful world revealed in shadows, revealed to his eye in shadows. By revealing the world, he invites us to find those worlds too. He could have written another essay called In Praise of Light, but his light would have been light in a world that has shadows too, right? <laughs> right. And so when he's describing all these... when. He's providing all these examples and the, the essay is really just one long series of examples where he's trying to build, he's trying to convey not a concept to you, but an affect and a percept of what it is to live in this world that's disappearing, this over, you know, in this world that was in our terms underlit. It had all this stuff that we've now uh, lost because we've overlit our environments. Now, the, the thing is that he's drawing attention to the depths in the surfaces of things, like in how things appear in the reality of appearances. This makes me think of Dogen, um, Dogen's metaphysics of the immediate reality of appearances, things yeah. appearing to us immediately, but that being very, very difficult to capture for yes. yourself to become conscious of. You can't think it. You can only live it. It's like Bergson's right. idea. We can't right. think life but we live life. So how do we, it's through, and, and it's through um, aesthetic work, I would say, through art, like these passages, these kind of artistic poetic passages in Tanizaki, his novels, poetry, the haiku, whatever, all these forms of aesthetic expression. These are ways of using language in a way that connects us to the beyond language, to that part which is in shadow because we can't see it. And the danger now is that in creating an overlit, ubiquitously lit, artificial environment in which we live out our days, we have become blind to the incredible depth and breadth of life outside the spaces of the known and the knowable that we inhabit. And so even those spaces appear to us filtered through the kind of diaphany of bad lighting so that even natural vistas manifest to us as kind of pictures on a postcard instead of immediate singularities that await discovery. And so he's drawing attention to the weird magic non-human dimension of things in their immediacy, which is something that pre-modern cultures in general, I would say, not just the Japanese, but pre-modern cultures had to deal with because they lived in a fully analog world and something that we in our digital fortress are at uh, risk of forgetting altogether. And that'll be to our detriment because while we live out our days in this digital fortress, this digital palace where everything is a sign and everything is knowable and everything is lit, the actual world remains the real. And so the failure and futility of our project is guaranteed. The stakes are very, very high in Tanizaki. He's giving us one way in which we can fight for our survival. 
both as individuals living in these spectral palaces of illusion and as cultures, societies, wanting to continue to thrive in a world whose dark aspects, whose shadows, we have decided to banish, to deny. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>